0: Well, Let's get into it this morning. uh, We have bags for our kids in the back that go along with uh, what I'm teaching on this morning. The story of Mephibosheth. Uh, That is not a name we use for our children much anymore. I kind of feel like somebody just needs to reclaim that name and use it again. But they're back there. If you want to go grab one so you can follow along with what we're doing, please do so. Now, as a review in this series of Game of Thrones, what we're talking about is Saul and David and the nation of Israel as they are transitioning from being a God-led country to asking God to give them a king. They had been a theocracy, and now they are turning into a monarchy, and God has anointed these people to be kings, but we can see just in their lives some real differences between Saul and David. Um, And what we boil that down to is the heart. I think the story of the kings of Israel is a blown-up picture of what's happening inside of each one of us. Because inside of you, at the core of who you are, there is a throne room with a throne that someone or something can be seated on. But it's not you. It's not your throne. You open the door to that throne room and you allow someone or something to come sit there and reign and rule over your life. And what we learned in the first uh, uh, part of this uh, series, we looked at Revelation and at this cosmic throne that's surrounded by angels in glory. Angels who are covered in eyeballs. Angels who circle the throne and they're covered in eyes and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that same king of the universe wants to stoop so low as to take up residence in your heart. Isn't that incredible to think about? It's all about the heart. That's what we're talking about. So then we looked at this idea of problems or providence. Are the things in your life that you would perceive as problems, could they perhaps be the providence of God? We looked at the story of Saul and his anointing as king. He had a problem that he faced from his dad who had lost his donkeys, and he went out looking for them. Three days later, Saul is anointed as king. It came out of nowhere for him, but God was establishing these things and setting these things up, and it's this incredible story of the sovereignty of God in Saul's life. Then we looked at Saul as he fell into envy. And his heart became corrupted as David was being celebrated and he was not. It drove him to do some terrible things. David was then anointed as king. But we talked about patience and that willingness to wait for God's time. You see, it's one thing to do the thing that God asks us to do, but it's also about the timing. When does God put the pieces in place for us to move forward on that? If we are not fully obedient to God and His timing... And that's disobedience too. You know, we talked last week about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and this concept of a whole heart. You see, again, David had something to do. He knew that the presence of God needed to be with the people. And so he was bringing it back. But do you remember, he wasn't doing it the way that God had instructed. And so God really humbled David in this moment. And this guy died as a result of David's not complete obedience. And God taught David how to have a whole heart. Well, today we're going to be telling the story of this guy named Mephibosheth and how his story relates to David. And it's an incredible story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there while I set this up. There are two kinds of people in life. There are the kinds of people who expect everything to go well. They are eternal optimists. Who would say you are more optimistic in life? Let's see your hand. Okay? You are the optimist in the group. There are then the other kind of people who expect things to go poorly. Who would say you're a pessimist in life? All right? I see a Way to go, pessimists. Yes. (laughs) Pessimists unite. I'm probably more geared that way. I tend to think of the things that could possibly go wrong. But regardless of whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you all have dreams about where you want to get to. Sometimes you think that in that um, idea of what's next for you, you expect things to go well or you might expect it to be a struggle, but everybody has this concept of something you want to get to, as something you want to attain one day, or something that maybe God has given to you as a dream of yours. Um, we give out a book oftentimes at high school graduations called Oh, The Places You'll Go, that just is filled with these dreams and expectations. But sometimes it just doesn't work out. Sometimes it all just fails and falls through. And the story of Mephibosheth is the story of a time when it just completely collapsed. There were bright things ahead for Mephibosheth. Everything was set up for him to be like, you'll you'll hear about it, I don't want to spoil the story, But it all falls apart. And so to understand this guy, we've got to start with his background. He's the grandson of the king, King Saul. Mephibosheth, the grandson of the king. His dad, Jonathan, by all earthly accounts, was in line for the throne as the king of Jerusalem, which would make Mephibosheth one day the heir to the throne as the son of the king. So what a bright horizon Mephibosheth had in front of him. He's born into a place of privilege. He's set up as the son of the son of the king, as the person who one day would inherit this throne. But some bad things happened and all of that was lost. His granddad Saul was having a bad time as the king of Israel and he uh, hadn't been obedient to God. God had rejected Saul and he'd anointed David. And now Saul is facing battle against this huge Philistine army. Facing battle against something that, that he, you know, he's faced it before, but this time the threat is even more real. And Samuel, the wise prophet who had journeyed with Saul through this process and who had anointed Saul through this process, had died. And Saul had no one to give him advice. So Samuel is out of the picture. And Saul begins to pray to God. But God doesn't answer. What a terrible place to be in where you have have done these things to cause God's ear to be turned from you. Saul is full of fear and his fear begins to drive him to make some serious errors. And so it's this emotional reaction that we thank God for fear. There are times when it's smart to be afraid, but to live in a spirit of fear is not the right way to go about it. We're not to to live in fear. It's okay. I mean, if, if you, you know, came home from church today and you opened your door and there was a grizzly bear in your kitchen, you would be right to be afraid. But to live and cause your life decisions, the things as you journey through life to be based out of fear, there's something wrong with that. We're told not to live in a spirit of fear. But Saul is. Living in a spirit of fear means you're living outside the spirit of God and God's love for you. So his heart is far from the loving heart of God, and this fear is driving him. And so Saul does something crazy. He decides to go to this witch's house who lives in a place called Endor. This story in your Bible is called The Witch of Endor. It's really a fascinating, fascinating story. Saul goes to see this witch, He's being two-faced. As a sign of goodwill to the Lord, uh, he's driven out all the mediums and witches from the land, but behind a closed door, he's kept one around, and we see his true heart. And he goes to the witch of Endor, and he asks the witch to conjure up the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel, who's been sort of his mentor through his time. Now, the spirit appears. We don't know, I can't say for certain, I mean, the spirit gives an accurate prophecy about what's to happen. And the spirit delivers words as though they were Samuel's words. Was it really the spirit of Samuel? I cannot say. I don't believe it probably was. I'm not positive. But the spirit couldn't lie. It has to speak the truth. And even demons speak the truth from time to time. They declare that Jesus is Lord. That's true. We read those stories of these spirits who are evil. They have to say truth from time to time. But anyhow, the spirit of Samuel or this demon that is behaving as Samuel appears in front of Saul. I tried to find a coloring sheet for this for the kids and there's a market void for the witch of Endor. So if anybody wants to, uh, you know, draw this up, I'd really love to have it so I could provide it for them. But let's read what happens here. Now read with me here on the screen. And if you would, you all carry this because I, I'm going to rest my voice and take a couple of drinks as we go through. Here we go. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back, Samuel asked Saul, because I am in deep trouble. And won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, Why ask me, since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival David. The Lord has done this to you today because you refused to carry out his fierce anger against the Amalekites. What's more, the Lord will hand you... The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. The Philistines and all your sons will be handed over. I'm sorry, you and your sons and Israel's army will be handed over to the Philistines. Saul is now even more terrified after hearing these words. And so he's incapable of just doing anything. He's completely out of commission. And in 1 Samuel chapter 31, just after the story of the witch of Endor, we get to this story of Saul on this mount called Gilboa. And the Philistine army is out on a rampage and they're closing in. And Saul begins to see that it is over for him. This prophecy that was given is coming true. He's being closed in. And he asked his armor bearer to kill him on the spot. He says, would you just end it now? I don't want to be captured by the Philistines. The armor bearer won't do it. So Saul takes out his own sword and he falls on it himself. He impales himself on his own sword. He commits suicide. And not just that, but Jonathan and all of Saul's other sons were killed. So this prophecy comes true. What a horrific day at the end of Saul's life. So Jonathan, Saul's other sons, and Saul, all are dead. But the story doesn't end there. Word reaches the place where Jonathan's baby boy is, Mephibosheth, and his caretaker, his nanny, is worried that the Philistines will come for them next. So she scoops up the baby, Mephibosheth, and she runs out the door. But on the way out the door, she trips, and she falls down some stairs. Not entirely sure of the process, but in the process, she drops Mephibosheth, and she permanently injures his legs. And now this little baby boy, who has this bright future ahead of him, is now completely crippled, that future is wiped out, and there is absolutely nothing left for him. What a bad day. The future king is now a cripple. He ends up being taken to this place called Lodabar. Lodabar is a backwater town far away from Jerusalem. The name Lodabar means one of two things. There's a possibility that one of the letters in the name has changed over time, so it could mean either no pasture, that word low is a negative, in the language, and then Debar, it might have been Debir, which would have been no no pasture, no place for animals to graze. Or if it's Debar, as it is now, it means nothing. This is a place of absolutely nothing. Do you know a place like that? A town that's just absolutely nothing? When we grew up uh, in Miles City, Montana, The closest other Wesleyan church to us was about 40 minutes away in a town called Terry, Montana. And Terry is a town that just had collapsed and it was just decreasing as people would die. Nobody was moving into Terry. Everybody was moving out. It was the Lodabar of our area. There was nothing there. If you lived in Terry, you were probably a rancher and if you needed groceries, you didn't get them in Terry. You had to drive 40 minutes to an hour another place to get those things. It was Lodabar. And here is this cripple now living in Lodabar. Ever had that point in your life where you're not where you thought you would be or should be? I mean, imagine if you're this little kid and your nanny is telling you, one day you're going to be the king. You're in line for the throne. Your head's been filled with this dream of what's ahead, but life has taken a turn and you find yourself in Lodabar and you feel as far as you could possibly feel from getting to where you wish you could be. Now, this is implied in Scripture, but I want to ask this question to you. Why Lodabar? It's implied that he's staying under the radar. He's hiding out, Mephibosheth is, in this town of Lodabar. Why? Now there's a new king, King David. And if you're like any of the other nations around, when a new king takes the throne, a king that's out of the line of succession of the family kings, what does that king want to do to that family? To ensure that they can't have the throne. Wipe them out, right? So if you were a family heir to the throne, as Mephibosheth was, you would be living in fear. Now there's this other guy, not part of your family, who's on the throne, and he would want to be out to get rid of you so that there would be no threat of you one day coming back to take your rightful place on the throne. So he's hiding out there in Lodabar. The next time we pick up the story of Mephibosheth is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David asks a question one day of the people around him. Here's the question. Read it with me. Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone whom I... Thank you all. Jonathan and David, Saul's son Jonathan and David had been best of friends. Behind the back of Saul, these two got along great. Saul couldn't stand David, but David and Jonathan were great buddies. And they, you know, piled around together. They covertly went on missions together. They did all these things. And David is thinking about his dear friend Jonathan, who has died there on the battlefield that day, when his dad Saul died. And he's thinking about his family. And David's heart is, is called a man after God's own heart because it exhibits some of the same characteristics of God's heart. He remembers Jonathan, not to destroy them, but if they exist, to say, I want to bless you in a way that you don't deserve. And so he asks, uh, again, Saul and his family, by any human standard, should be hated by David. There's no reason for him to have spared Saul's life, those times when he had opportunities to take Saul out, and there's no reason to have uh, prevented a wedge to be driven between uh, David and Jonathan. But that's not how God operates, and that's not how David is operating here either. Aren't you glad that you don't always get what you deserve? There are times when you get things that you don't deserve, and that's a wonderful thing sometimes in our life. We were enemies of God, yet God still wants us around. We're getting something we don't deserve. And by all human standard, Mephibosheth should be an enemy of David. And David wants Mephibosheth around. And so David calls for one of his servants, Ziba, who was a servant of Saul. And he asked him this question. Read with me. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, yes. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. In Lodabar Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So they call for Mephibosheth to come in. But Mephibosheth is rightly afraid. He's afraid to go to the king's castle again, implying that this would be a great end to finish him off, to wipe out the line of Saul. He's afraid And he comes to the king's palace anyways, though. He's brought there, and we pick it up in verse 6. Read with me. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. What a moment. Oh, sorry, sorry. Here we go. Pause for just a second. Time out. What a moment here. All right? Imagine the fear and trembling in your heart as you approach the king. You've been brought there by the servants. You're crippled. You can't run. He's found out where you are. And you make your way there and you bow down low and you feel like this could really, this could be a trap and you may be setting me up for the end. So picture that crippled man down on his knees, bowing low before the king. And then look at what the king says. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Whoa! This is incredible. This is something amazing. Mephibosheth goes from living in Lodabar, where there is absolutely nothing, to fearing for his life in front of the king, to all of a sudden being handed over all his grandfather's property, and... A room in the house of the king to come eat and dine at the king's table anytime he likes. That's incredible. Mephibosheth goes from having nothing to being a part of the family of the king. Is there anything that Mephibosheth did to deserve this great thing? No. Mephibosheth didn't do it. So why did David do this thing for him? Because he remembered Mephibosheth through something someone else did. When David was looking at Mephibosheth, he was seeing the face of Mephibosheth's daddy, Jonathan, who he loved. Isn't it great you bear a family resemblance? You look like your parents. You might talk like them. You might be like me and had a book that you kept as a kid, things I'll never say to my children. And then you find yourself saying those things to your child. Like, oh, well, I get it now. I didn't get it then, but I get it now. You are that. And so when he looks at Mephibosheth, he's seeing his friend, Jonathan. Check out Mephibosheth's reaction in verse 8. Read it with me. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? A dead dog like me, he says. Now you might miss this, so I want to break it down. We've all got, you know, an affection as Americans in our hearts for our dogs. They're a part of our families. If you're a dog person, you'll love your dog. I had a dog that I cried over. His name was Jake. Here's a picture of him right here. And Jake came to us. He was a senior citizen dog who lived in the home of a a single lady who'd passed away. And every day she'd feed him hot dogs. He didn't eat dog food. He ate hot dogs. And then she felt like, to keep him lubricated, she needed to help him so that he could go to the bathroom. And so she'd give him, for some weird reason, a dollop of Vaseline to eat every day. Imagine the poor life of this dog. When we inherited this dog, he was way overweight. We had two stairs that went up into our home, and he couldn't get up one of the two stairs. Uh, He was just in a miserable, miserable place. Now, it was true that he did have some gastrointestinal (laughs) issues. Uh, You know how, like when the dog sort of hunches over, he would push so hard as he's trying to go that his front paws would come up off the (laughs) ground. So he'd go So the Vaseline thing might have been, uh, it might have been real that he needed that. But we cut out the Vaseline and we cut out the hot dogs. And he dropped a ton of weight and became this super active dog again. He could bound up the stairs and we would play a game. We had a long hallway in our house. Ashley would sit at one end, I'd sit at the other. And he would throw the tennis ball down the hall and he would just run until he would fall over and just collapse. Well, he got cancer after we'd had him for a couple of years. I mean, he was an elderly dog to begin with and face, you know, really gray. He got cancer and we had to have him put down and I cried the day that it dawned on me, when I realized it's time. I cried because my heart went out to that dog. I loved that dog, it was a great dog. But in some cultures, you don't operate this way. We have an affection for dogs, but in some cultures, dogs are not looked upon as something nice to have around. They're burdensome, they're annoying, they're taking resources from you that need to go to you or your family. And that was the case in this culture. In fact, I have gotten to spend some time in Haiti. And in Haiti, there's not much kindness shown to a living dog. Dogs are considered annoyances. I've witnessed, as I've been passing through a town in Haiti, I've witnessed people beating a dog that showed up to a store. Because it's trying to take resources that are hugely valuable for the people there. Dogs are not looked highly upon. And so here is Mephibosheth not just saying, showing kindness to me like a dog, but saying, showing kindness to a dead dog such as me. You know, if a dog isn't valued at all, what value is there in a dead dog? Nothing. There's no value there. And so when Mephibosheth sees himself in the the palace of the king and the king is extending him, this kindness. He's saying, what did I do to deserve this? I am absolutely nothing. And here's what's beautiful. What we are witnessing in this picture of David to Mephibosheth is the concept of grace. Grace by its definition is this. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. You don't deserve this thing, but you're being given it anyways. Because when you see that David looks at Mephibosheth, he sees his dear friend Jonathan. David is a man after God's own heart. Why? Because it's a reflection. David's heart is a reflection of God's heart. And guess what? We are part of this story. This story of David and Mephibosheth is a reflection of the story of you and of me. We've ended up in some places we never thought we would. We have fallen far out of the favor of the king. We've traveled down some roads that we shouldn't have gone down, and we've ended up in some backwater places that we shouldn't be in. But guess what? We should be God's enemies, but here's the gospel message today. Here is the good news of grace. Jesus. And when you're connected to Jesus... When Jesus is Savior of your heart and your life, when the king looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. It's a reflection. When David looked at Mephibosheth, David saw Jonathan. And when the king of glory looks at you, if you are connected to Jesus, the king of glory sees his beloved son or his beloved daughter yeah, I heard a couple of you but there should be a little <laughs> bit more over that there should be a little bit more let's read on 2 Samuel 9 beginning with verse 9 then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family you and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now get that. Now the blessing is rolling off onto Ziba, a servant of Saul. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king. I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Here is the good news for you and for me today. There is a seat at the table of the king of kings that's got your name on the place card. It's got a place for you. Jesus has set a place for you. And what a blessing it is to be connected to Christ, because in that connection, God sees you as a dearly loved child. You have wandered far from where you should have been. Sin has taken you to some low down, backwater, nothing places that are void of all that is good. And nothing that you've done to deserve it makes it happen, but because of Jesus Christ, there's a place for you. If you turned your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, I believe it is, you'd get to this passage of Jesus who's setting a table. Let's go to this next. I don't have it up there. Never mind. Thank you. I forgot I didn't include this. If you go to Luke chapter 22, you'll see this in verse 19. Jesus is sitting at a table with his friends around him. And Jesus takes some bread and he gives thanks to God for it. He breaks it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. There is a seat at the king's table for you. Now note, I have not put the slide up yet to fill in the blank, okay? Because here's what I want you to think about for a moment. There is good news that there is a seat at the king's table for you. And in your notes, you could put there, in that blank spot, you could put your name.
1: But what I want to
0: ask you to do here is something more. You see, there's not just a seat at the table for you. Because of Jesus Christ, there is a seat at the table for anyone and everyone who will call upon his name, even the person who should be your enemy. So now I want to flip the story again, and I want to put you in David's place. And I want to ask your heart to consider something for just a moment. who is your, Who should be your enemy? Who has wronged you? Who is that person that you may have put up a wall or cut out of your life, or said, I I absolved myself of you, I'm done with you. That's the person who I want you to put the name in the blank space. Because of Jesus Christ, there is a seat at the table for you and for them, the person who should be your enemy. You see, God's heart is reflected in David's life, and the same should be true in your life and mine if we are followers of Christ, we should have a kingdom reflection where the enemy is extended grace. Who is there a seat for at the table? I want to invite the worship team to come up for a moment. We're going to receive communion today, but I want to take a moment to allow the heart to reflect. I want to give your heart a moment to reflect and ask that question, who do you need to write down in that blank space? Whose name goes there? I'm going to ask that our musicians play, and you consider this for a moment as we begin to prepare for communion. Just take a moment. If you filled out that spot, that's great. If you don't have a bulletin today, I just want you to picture that person in your mind you do have your bulletin would you look at it look at that name and I want to ask you to do something that's very difficult to do I want to ask you to see Jesus in that person because his grace can cover them would you do that for just a moment let me pray for you as you begin God this is not an easy process it goes counter to what our sin nature would have for us We want to make enemies of our enemies, but you don't do that for us. You see, we're your enemies and we are far from you. And yet we got something that we don't deserve. We're the Mephibosheth in the story and you're the David. You extend something to us that that is far beyond what we could have earned or even hoped for. And because of that, you see us as your sons and daughters. Now God, as we examine our hearts, as we think and, and reflect right now on the person who should be our enemy, God, I pray that you would give us new eyes to see you in them. God, give us the occasion to extend that grace and that love to that person because that could be salvation in their life. God, give us the hands and feet of Jesus. Give us the voice of Jesus as we extend ourselves to them. You've done it for us, but you do it for all who would call on your name, even those who should be our enemies. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And thank you for this reflection of your great love in David's life. And would we be a great mirror? that is pointed to heaven, allowing that kingdom to be reflected in our lives as well. It's in the glorious and wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.